On the 15th of October 2017, American actor Alyssa Milano sent out a tweet that went, If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. Within a week, the slogan had been used more than 12 million times and within two weeks it had reached 86 countries and had been turned into a global movement, what we now know as the Me Too campaign. But it wasn't a totally original campaign. It started more than 10 years ago when Tarana Burke first used the phrase in 2006 to raise awareness of sexual assault against women. But it was Alyssa Milano's tweet that was a response to allegations of harassment, molestation and rape by entertainment mogul Harvey Weinstein. The ripple effect of those and subsequent reports have been felt not only in the film industry, but in politics, sport, music, television. In fact, few industries and areas have been left untouched. I'm Anissa Subedar, and you're listening to the BBC Trending Podcast. In the next two episodes, we're looking at the worldwide impact of Me Too, what's happened, where we're at right now, and what the future holds. Is it a phenomenon with long-lasting consequences? Is it a concept that includes some women and not others? Has it created a deeper solidarity between women or simply divided them? I'm joined by a panel of women who are going to help navigate this landscape, one from a studio in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Megan McArdle, a columnist for The Washington Post. And two of my guests are in the studio with me here in London. Hello, I'm Natalie Collins and I'm a gender justice specialist. My name is Kirsty Allison and I'm a writer, author and various labels, which I'm totally against. <laughs> as well as our esteemed guests, we're also going to hear some individual Me Too stories and experiences from around the world. But let's start with your own personal involvement with Me Too. Do you feel part of the movement and in what way have you participated? Uh, let's start with you, Kirsty. Firstly, I'm a total feminist. I mean, just being born a woman, I'm born in a world which is not equal. I wrote an essay which has a swear word in it that said I effed Harvey Weinstein. And I made a T-shirt about it, which I published on my own blog, that got quite a lot of respect and attention because it brought into the argument the issue of agency and women and culture. So I think basically behaviour is a culture that we need to take responsibility for. You didn't actually have sex with Harvey Weinstein. No, but I was born blonde. I mean, that puts you in a situation before you've even begun. What does that mean? We are objectified daily and we fall into stereotypical archetypal kind of identities, which are a construction. Natalie, what's been your personal experience um, when I kind of came across the Me Too hashtag on Twitter, um, my first response was to write a blog saying this is going to make no difference to women's lives. Um, and actually, I've been pleasantly surprised that my rather miserable predictions were not the, the end of that, that I guess having worked on addressing sexual and domestic violence and male violence generally for the last decade, I kind of looked at this this message coming out and thought nobody cares about women. Nobody cares about women. So how is this campaign going to make any difference? And I've been surprised that actually it has made more of a difference. And actually, like, I wasn't trying to be negative about women sharing their stories. And I said within my blog, this is a really a, an amazing opportunity for women to share their stories. And if that invites other people to share their stories and people to break off the shame of their own experiences and what's been done to them by sharing it, then that has an amazing potential to affect change in individual lives. But, you know, as the old feminist slogan that is still 
relevant today, the personal is political, tells us we need to move from personal stories to something else. And, you know, I think we've seen some of that with the Time's Up movement, which is great. But... Did you feel you needed to share your story? No, I mean, I've shared lots of different parts of my stories at different times online and in, in public forums. So I felt like most of the people who follow me already know my story. So I felt like actually this was a chance for people who haven't shared their stories in a sense to feel like this is a time when I can be out there and share my story. But you might argue there's a whole new audience that has come to this fresh that doesn't know your story. How would they ever know your experience or feel any kind of allegiance to this movement if they don't hear from you? There was something about the Me Too campaign initially that was about people bringing forth this for the first time, about that being, actually, I'm I'm speaking this into a space that's never been spoken before. And I wanted to honour the fact that for, for women who it was the first time sharing their stories, that that was a space for them to do that. Megan, let me ask you the same question. What was your personal involvement and, and how did you participate? I have already written before the kind of Me Too moment happened. I had already written about my experiences being sexually harassed as a young woman working in tech consulting. And when the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I said, the sign is not going to be when you're willing to fire a guy who's 65 and whose power is waning. The sign is going to be when you're willing to fire some younger people. And I think we saw a little bit of that. So I was surprised. I also think that we saw, and I've also written about that, is that when you have a radical norm shift like this, and this was radical, right? We went from overnight Harvey Weinstein had been getting away with this for how many years? And also, like, look, jokes about the casting couch. It's This had been going on for a long time. We went overnight from this to people getting fired for stuff where a lot, of, even a lot of feminists were like, I don't understand what he's supposed to have done wrong. And so I think we have to negotiate this and we have to think carefully about what sorts of new norms we're going to put in place. I think it is fantastic that we have made it unacceptable for people like Harvey Weinstein and Charlie Rose, Mark Halperin to keep operating in a way that's just appalling. But I also think that, you know, these are gender is hard. Sex is hard. And so we have to kind of figure out how we're going to negotiate this in ways that give women more places to succeed without creating unintended side effects that we don't want either on men or on women as men act to protect themselves from possible Me Too accusations. Megan, is there evidence that it's actively changed the way men and women interact now? Well, I'm starting to hear from guys who say things like, well, obviously I can never be alone with any of my female subordinates. And that is, you know, that is troubling. Because those are these were normal. Is it troubling? I mean, you know, the I love Margaret Atwood's quote that um, men are scared that women will laugh at them, and women are scared that men will kill them, and that actually this whole kind of idea that the poor men who can't meet with women alone because they might get accused of something they haven't done it suggests that this whole Me Too movement and these things that women are saying that they're not true because if those men aren't going to sexually assault those women, well, why would they need to worry about meeting on their own with them because women aren't going around making false accusations all the time. well, in fact, there there is some were, of it. in America, we had a situation where a journalist at the New York Times who did not have power over the women that he hit on. Now, look, he was married. If I were his wife, we would have had some very, very unhappy words. But he was hitting on young female journalists who he didn't work with or who he did not supervise. And basically, the accusation was, well, he is very successful and powerful. He's at the New York Times, political reporter, White House reporter. And therefore, this was inappropriate because, you know, he has power in a way that the women that he was hitting on didn't. Well, that was not the rule. 
And he was subject to an investigation. He was suspended. He was demoted. And so, yes, the, you know, when you have a radical norm shift and people don't understand what the new norm is, because I don't think anyone a year ago thought that the norm was if you are a successful journalist, you aren't allowed to have affairs with – you shouldn't do that. I mean that was but proven you will get with our fired for doing yeah. that as a sexual harassment thing with women that you don't work with. It's and a, it's a it's, matter of behavior becoming the culture. So Me Too has – definitely affected the way that people are behaving. I saw it on Sunday. I was at a football thing where someone had drunk too much. He went over to a woman and he was kind of, oh, come back to my darling, something like that. And then my friend went over to him, another male, went over and just pulled him up on it and said, mate, don't behave like that. It's unacceptable. And that is a definite shift that I'm seeing. Is that kind of, it it is. Our behaviours are changing because of Me Too. However, I also speak to people say in Ghana who are still mainly secretaries as females working in a professional sector and they haven't heard of Me Too. So it hasn't happened. We're looking through it as a sort of a Western optic. I had an incident a few weeks ago where I was crossing the road to meet some friends and a guy went, hey darling, where have you been? And I was like, ignored him. And he walked towards me and grabbed my hand And I was so shocked because my first instinct was to say, has Me Too not arrived at your door yet? (laughs) And so I think, you know, there are examples both for and against to show that, you know, it has changed or it hasn't changed. Coming up next is the first of our global stories. I mentioned that the hashtag had been used in 86 countries only a short time after the first flurry of tweets. In Russia, an equivalent hashtag was used, the direct English translation of which is, I'm not afraid to say. Asya, who doesn't want to give us her second name, is a 30-year-old freelance photographer who shares her personal story of sexual violence using that hashtag. She spoke to Elizaveta Verikina from the BBC's Moscow Bureau. I posted several stories that happened in my life. Rape, attempts to rape me, about a man beating me up. These all happened to me between the ages of 17 and 23. I found the hardest one to share was about when I was living with a boyfriend I loved so very much. We broke up and he beat me up severely. But it wasn't the physical pain that hurt me the most in that moment. It was the moral and emotional pain. You become broken inside. You don't understand why he's doing this. When I wrote that post on Facebook, I felt relief because when you share the story online, it's easier than looking into someone's eyes and saying, you know, this crap happened in my life. Also, I suddenly realized that many girls who surround me lived through something similar or even worse. Harassment was everywhere. Also, many men started reacting to the stories and expressed concern. They didn't blame us girls. They did say, we men are wrong for behaving like this. That was freelance photographer Asia telling her story to the BBC's Elisaveta Verikinia. The telling of stories like Asia's have been the very backbone to the Me Too movement. They say it's about giving people a voice. On the website, it says it wants to see a cultural transformation by encouraging millions to speak out about sexual violence and harassment. It's now become a catch-all to encompass everything from catcalling to rape. 
Do you think that it's right that it includes everything in that spectrum, Natalie? As a specialist in sexual and domestic violence, I think it's important that we represent the full range of how women's space and lives are invaded by men's entitlement over them. However, I think from a campaigning point of view, from a branding point of view, it's very problematic because kind of successful campaigns usually have one ask and it has a very clear agenda, a very clear perspective that we can all understand. And actually, the reality is that feminism started or it is always when a woman wakes up one day and goes, oh... It's bad to be a woman. There's difficulties. I face difficulties in my life because I'm a woman. And then they think, oh, I need to do something about it. So how do you have a collective response, which is generally people waking up going, there's something wrong with the world and I need to do something. It it doesn't necessarily lead to a very cohesive movement. Megan, what do you think? What we often try to do in these cases, right, is we take something for which there's an extremely severe punishment, right, like rape or stalking someone and so forth. And then because we really want to fight this thing that I think we can all agree, right, like however bad catcalling is, it is not the same as raping someone. We want to basically put some of the pressure that is applied against rape against catcalling. And so we tend to like increase our definitions The problem with that, though, is that I think that often it really devalues the severe offenses instead of upvaluing the less severe ones. And if we group those two things together in an effort to redress all of them, what we're going to end up doing is redressing catcalling a lot and then not redressing rape enough. I mean, and I think so that that's guilt. why we need those. There's so much guilt around it as well. I think that kind of plays into it hugely. So it's not the same as kind of, is it the same? I mean, this is a big question. Is it the same? same? Is it the same as being kind of raped on a refugee camp daily because that's the situation that you're in? Or is that the same as having agency on a casting couch? I mean, do we kind of, how do we define those very complicated things? I don't think anybody is saying they're the same. What they're saying is they fit under the same movement, which is a different thing, saying actually there's this huge thing around male entitlement over women's bodies and whether that works out its works its way out in terms of catcalling or whether it works itself out as sexual violence in a refugee camp they're they're on a spectrum of the same issue yes you have to have different responses and i think the problem with say the me too movement is you have a very a very unnuanced medium social media trying to respond to something that is hugely nuanced and that's yeah. problematic some of the conversation about me too have been on the lines of women that see themselves perhaps as helpless victims against men then that hands off any kind of responsibility to men. What's your view on that, Natalie? I wouldn't say that any of the women who shared in the Me Too movement or any of the ones particularly publicly are saying, I now can't be alone with a man because I'm really scared of all men. That's not what we're seeing as the story that people are telling. It's saying, I feel empowered now. I feel like I don't, that doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the person who hurt me. That shame doesn't belong to me. It belongs to someone else. And I think that's that's really powerful. This idea that victimhood makes people weak and et cetera, et cetera, that's a, a myth about being a victim. It, it's, it's just not as simple. Megan? What's your take on this? Uh, I, I, I really disagree with that. I mean, if you look at something like the Aziz Ansari story, which became big, at least on this side of the pond, mm-hmm. right? This is a fairly famous guy, actor. A young woman had a, he met him at an event. They went on a date. And there's this long thing about like he ordered the wrong kind of wine and she was unhappy. And then they go back to his apartment and they start to hook up. But she's sort of uncomfortable with how aggressive he is and he says to back off and he does. What's clear is, look, as happens, she is ambivalent and what she wanted really from him, I think, you know, this is reading between the lines, is more romance and more, you know, 
And it's not clear that's what he was interested in from the date. And that is that's going to be the reality. We're not going to get to some like, you know, 16 candles fantasy where everything happens on a pink cloud and there are never negotiations between men and women. And that's what worries me about, first of all, seeing the Aziz Ansari story kind of pulled into Me Too. But also the amount of powerlessness that this woman expressed about not being able to just get an Uber and leave. Something that you said that kind of hit home for me was that generational divide and that generational reaction to that particular piece where women of a certain age will go, why on earth did you not just get into a cab and leave? You had every opportunity. He did not hold you against your will. And then there was another section of women who had said, no, she was absolutely right. It was in her right to stay to see what happened. She was perfectly capable of handling herself. Do you think, in your opinion, that that particular scenario was the first time that we'd seen a divide between women in the Me Too conversation? That was, I think, the first time that it was public. There were, even before that, there were some older women expressing concerns about some, by no means all, I should say. Many of these women are, at the same time, they want Harvey Weinstein's head on a platter. They were concerned about, in America at least, which is what I'm familiar with, they were concerned about some of the stories about Glenn Thrush at the New York Times, which I already talked about. Older women were expressing concerns about those stories early on. And I think it goes back to the sense that we felt like we had power and we made mistakes with it. And yeah, of course she has a right to stay and see what happens. But at the same time, then then you have to take some responsibility for if what happens isn't what you wanted, as long as he's not doing something wrong. The thing is, you are right. We, I think young women have been told a lie. They've been sold a lie that they can have equal power in sexual interactions with men. And that's just, it, the, the, although in, in kind of an in, individually, yes, women should be able to, and young women should be able to go into an encounter in a man's house and feel that they have equal power. The reality is they don't. That man will be physically stronger than her. Porn culture has led her to have particular understanding of what it means to to have sexual interactions, of what is erotic, of what's not, of when she's allowed to say no. She's been socialised female, so how she how she says no, how she says yes, all of those things are, are conditioned by all sorts of forces but, that are outside of her control. And so the problem is not necessarily that woman going into that interaction. The problem is that she has lived in a culture which hasn't educated her that men and women are not equal and men have power over women in, in nearly every interaction that she's going to have. I, I actually disagree with that. I think there are situations in which women have more power in an interaction and it's complicated. I think there are also lots of situations where the men do. But I think here's but the thing is we should teach those women if the culture is, you know, yes, there are problems with the way that the culture sexualizes women and so forth. We need to teach women to stand up and seize that power back. The next voice you're going to hear is from a Nigerian lawyer, Aisha Asuri. As much as women may have felt things are changing, Nigerian women still feel that for them, a watershed moment such as Me Too is still a long way off. Well, we are a very patriarchal society in a way that Nigerians are, are said to be guilty of feeling exceptional. But honestly, I think our patriarchy is on a different level. We're still at the level where when women are raped, people say, what was she wearing? And like, it's, it's always a woman's fault. And then you add that to the permissive society. So men are characterized and framed as studs, as people who have very high libido, who can't control themselves which is why the blame for rape is always on the woman. The thing is that we don't think that our society will be outraged by it. We don't think that our society will want to do something about it. You know, there's a Nigerian saying, or maybe an African saying about how you have to wet the ground before you plant a seed. The ground isn't wet. 
the women are holding the seeds. We have the seeds in our hands, but we we can't plant them because the, the ground isn't wet. We're just not ready. Aisha, in your opinion, what needs to happen to evoke change in Nigeria for women there? It's a very good question. I mean... What would you like to see? First of all, you don't even have rape kits. Many hospitals don't have rape kits. Let's just start with that. Then I would like our police to have some, also have protocols on how to deal with rape, to know that certain types of questions are not acceptable, to be able to gather this evidence. I think if that happened, we would see more and more people coming forward. All those things coming together would make the ground wet for Nigerian women to start saying, me too, in a way that's not just I too was abused, but XYZ abused me, and this is how he did it. That was activist and lawyer Aisha Osori, who I spoke to from Abuja in Nigeria. Now, one of the other things that she told me as to why Nigerian women felt they were not ready to name names and speak openly about sexual abuse and harassment is because they felt they couldn't relate to people like Rose McGowan or Ashley Judd or any number of the other Hollywood actors who came forward to talk about Harvey Weinstein, that it just wasn't their world. What has Me Too done for the women who can't speak up? I mean, who can speak up about everything for everyone? That's just a kind of naive fantasy, isn't it? I don't think we should be necessarily expecting the Me Too campaign to reach everybody and and do everything. It's done some things for some people. And actually, in every community, there needs to be work done so that that community can do that. And if there is stuff that if that community comes to the leaders of the Me Too movement, wherever in the world and said, look, can you help us in this way? Hopefully they'll help. But whether they shouldn't be leading it, it wouldn't be appropriate for them to lead that campaign elsewhere anyway. When we speak about this stuff, it is going to be culturally bound because that's what we're trying to do is change the culture. And that means that in every country, in every place, we can share our experiences as women, but it has to be led by local people making local decisions about how to move this forward within their own cultural framework. My thanks to Megan McArdle, columnist for The Washington Post, author Kirsty Allison and gender justice specialist Natalie Collins. I think we've just scratched the surface when looking at this complex topic of the Me Too movement. So we're going to take a breather and come back to the conversation in next week's episode, where we're going to hear more from women around the world on the issue and find out what's next for the movement. Please get in touch. Tell us what you thought about this podcast. And you can do that by finding us on Facebook and sending us a message there or on Twitter at BBC Trending. Oh, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode. If you like trending, then I'm sure you'll equally like some of our other great BBC World Service podcasts. Let me recommend Outlook. It brings you gripping tales of adventure, emotional experiences, human drama with one extraordinary personal story at a time. Recent episodes include the final of Outlook's Inspiration Awards. If you ever get the sense that the world looks a bit bleak, It's a reminder of what people can achieve, even with the odds stacked against them. Search for Outlook wherever you found this podcast. That's it for Trending This Week. I'm Anissa Suvidar. Thanks for listening. Finding the right foundation is harder than ever. Il Maquillage makes it easy to find your perfect match online. No store required. 
With 50 shades of flawless coverage and over 60,000 five-star reviews, the hype is real. Their online quiz uses AI to find your ideal shade in seconds. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.